Genesis 22, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abram, Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the, ma- the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of these mountains, which I tell thee of. And Abraham arose early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place which the Lord had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his son, and Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. You may be seated. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. The title for the sermon today is, What's to be seen on Mount Moriah? What's to be seen on Mount Moriah? Abraham saw quite a lot up there that day. Look at verse 4. He lifted up his eyes and saw the place. Look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram. Abraham saw a lot up there that day. What's to be seen on Mount Moriah? Notice also God's proclamation in verse 14. And Abraham, well, the last phrase, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. God would have us to see what is to be seen on Mount Moriah. What is there to be seen for you and for me up on Mount Moriah? Now, the events of the day here in Genesis 22 happened about 4,000 years ago, you know. 
And that was 2,000 years before another something significant took place on another mountain, Mount Calvary. And now it's a good 2,000 years since Mount Calvary. What's, what's to be seen on Mount Moriah? Abraham, I like to think, was 133 years old at this time in Genesis 22. The Bible doesn't say that. If you wonder why I think so, you can ask me afterward. I like to think that he was 133, and he lived to be, you might know, 180 years old. So if in our life expectancy, 133 years out of 180, in our life expectancy, that would be about a 60-year-old, which some of us are about that age. Well, let's take a look together and on this mountaintop of a chapter and see if we can what's to be seen on Mount Moriah. Before that, though, maybe we should take a bird's eye view of Abraham's life prior to this day on Genesis, in Genesis 22. Maybe we can see a few things. Maybe we can view a few things that's good for us who are living 2,000 years after Mount Calvary and 4,000 years after this day on Mount Moriah. What's to be seen on Mount Moriah? If you will turn with me from Genesis 22 back to Genesis 12 and... You will see when you get there, and if you're reading the first five verses, you will see, one of the things you'll see is that Abraham at that stage of his life was 75 years old. And you just scan those verses, if you will. I don't think we're going to take time to read them, except maybe pull out a few phrases here. I'd like to suggest that this time of Abraham's life, here in chapter 12, when he was 75, um, I'd like to suggest as first point in the four points that we have here today is detachment. Do you see detachment here? As you scan those verses, detachment. And in my mind's eye, that word, detachment, has kind of scary and certainly negative connotations. A number of years ago, Wanda had problems with her eye. And we went to the doctor and he said, well, you need to do something right away. Or if, if not, your retina will become detached. And if those kind of things keep happening, you'll lose sight in that eye. A detached retina. Well, I'm happy to say that the doctor fixed her right up and she's just fine. Her retina didn't detach. Another way that we use that word, detached, is when we describe someone who is, doesn't care much. You know, the dictionary would say, when someone's not concerned, when he's disinterested, when he's aloof, that we call him detached. A negative connotation. So why are we saying that Abraham here 
experience detachment. Well, in Abraham's case, the detachment that he experienced was one, maybe the best thing that had ever happened to him up to that point in his life. There's indications in the Bible, it doesn't say that right out loud, but I kind of think that he was successful in business as a young man back in Ur of the Chaldees. But the fact that he became detached here was better than that. I think he probably must have had a reputation as a respected man in the community, a pillar in the community. Certainly, I think so. But the fact that he experienced detachment was better than that. He married a princess. Abraham did, remember? Her name was Sarah. Her name was changed to Sarah. And that means a princess. Does that mean that maybe she was, had some royal blood? Oh, I don't know. I like to think that that could have been a possibility. Either way, she was a... a help meet for him in many ways as we notice their lives together here in these chapters of Genesis. She was able in her own right and perhaps had a more um, bubbly, flamboyant personality than her husband. But the fact that he became detached was better than that, better than his marriage. Somehow, God got his attention and said, go. Well, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, get thee out. And so, Abraham did that. He left home. He left his family. Well, with the exception of his dad, who went along part of the way. The community, everything near and dear to him. Let's see, why did he do that? Was it because he expected that moving to another place would be a step in, his, in the right direction business-wise? Did he think that it would profit him in his reputation? Did he just enjoy being a pioneer, a kind of person that steps out and goes to a new place and makes something out of that? No, it's very obvious in the text. It was because God commanded that. God said, go detach yourself. And so he did. We think we might see a couple misfires and delays here in this part of his life. Maybe the fact that he took Tira, his dad, along. Maybe the fact that he stayed, maybe detoured and stayed in the town of Haran. But I rejoice that the, end, the last phrase in verse 5, there in Genesis 12, and into the land of Canaan they came. God said, detach yourself from all that you know. And that's what Abraham did. That might have been the first major detachment in his life, maybe. But throughout Abraham's life, he needed to experience detaching again from time to time. So this was the initial one. But he needed to detach himself some more. Like, remember when he went down to Egypt, he and Sarah? 
Well, God said, no, no, not Egypt. Again, detachment. He detached himself from the plain of Jordan, there in that with Lot. He detached himself from Lot. He detached himself from Hagar and Ishmael because God said so. He detached himself from the king of Sodom and those riches and that glory that could have gone with that. Later on, he, after this chapter, after Genesis 22, he needed to detach himself from Sarah when she died. Can you see, can we see together that God's people here today, 2,000 years after Mount Calvary and 4,000 years after this Mount Moriah experience, can we see that we, as God's people, need to experience the same, that of detachment? Detachment from what? Detachment from the world. Detachment from our own carnal will and desires. Maybe sometimes detachment from loved ones that have been taken away from us. Detachment. And I say, and you agree, I believe, that detachment from the world and detachment from self and, those, and continuing detachments of that sort are much, much better than the pleasures of sin for a season. Detachment. As I think of that, I think of the octopus, you know, with its eight tentacles. And when the octopus attaches itself to something, then he is attached, or that, that object is attached. But Abraham was able to detach himself. Well, it was God that did it. God detached him from the eight tentacles of the world and self. Maybe a more biblical example or picture would be that of where the psalmist says, our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowler. Thank God that Abraham was able to rescue, to be rescued from the snare of the fowler and experienced freedom because he was detached, became detached from all that. But I Detachment is not an end in itself. The, that of being detached is moot. It's without merit. It helps nothing unless there's a corresponding attachment, attachment for us here today to Abraham's God and God's only begotten Son. Detachment, yes, that's one thing, but attachment to God and His Word and His program Thank God that we can be saved from our sin, that we can be rescued from the tentacles of sin and self and the world. We can be detached from that and be attached to the Savior of the world, Lord God of heaven and earth, Jesus, God's only begotten Son. Well, that was Genesis 12, detachment. The beginning of Abraham's life with the Lord. And then those chapters from 12, 13, 14, and on up through until Genesis 22, God also, uh, the second point that I'm thinking about is that of development. After God detached Abraham, 
he also was interested in Abraham's continual development. We see that in these chapters. We're not going to talk about that very much, except to say that Abraham certainly had his ups and downs after he became detached from the world and attached unto the Lord of the universe. He had his ups and downs, a little bit like some of the rest of us here, perhaps. It's, isn't it easy for you to see from this vantage point of 4,000 years later that God was developing Abraham. He was maturing Abraham. God was shaping him and molding him and ennobling him and preparing him, preparing him for what was yet in the future, both in this life and in that which is to come. Development. John Phillips has said, God brought all kinds of experiences into Abraham's life to develop his man. Sometimes Abraham enjoyed mountaintop experiences. Other times he walked through dark valleys of despair. Sometimes he savored victory. Other times he tasted defeat. Whether his experiences brought sunshine or shadow, glorious faith or miserable doubt, they all became grist in God's mill. Chapter after chapter, Abraham's story reveals how God mellowed him and matured him. God was in the business of developing his man, development. And it's easy for us to see, isn't it, that God is going about and doing the same with his friends today. Even us sitting and standing here today at church. In Genesis 21, the last two verses of Genesis 21, just immediately before the events of Genesis 22, the last two verses, it seems as if it seems to me as if Abraham had arrived at what he thought was a plateau in his development. And I think I see here, this was, well, the last thing that, major thing that had happened was he had made a, a non-aggression pact with Abimelech, the Philistine, and they worked through a little bit of conflict there and came through that all right. And in Abraham... Verse 33, And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Do you kind of see that uh, leveling off? Abraham had been developed now for maybe 58 years, right? From 75 to 133. God had been developing him and polishing him. And it wouldn't surprise me much that Abraham consciously or subconsciously thought, oh, I think I'm about there, and maybe I won't have too many trials anymore. I remember a long time ago when I was a teenager, for some reason I remember it yet, um, there was an older man in our church here at Weavertown, his name was Henry Lapp. 
and he was well-respected. And one time, he had a topic at a young people's meeting, and I would guess he was in his 70s or 80s. He was a pretty old man to have any kind of uh, talk. And he talked about how that in his old age, it seems like his trials were not lessening, but that in this time of his life, the trials and tribulations that God blessed him with were as hard as ever. Well, I think maybe some of the rest of us are finding that too. We thank God for his grace, though, in spite of all that. So here was Abraham, maybe at a leveled-off place in his life, and suddenly, after these things, Genesis 22, 1, God came to him and started talking to him. This is the first that we know of, that God had appeared and spoken to Abraham for a little while. And now we're thinking about Genesis 22. We've talked about his detachment, and we've talked about his development. Now let's notice how that God, I think, displays or shows off his man. I was struggling a bit with the title, and one of the possibilities that I had thought of was God shows off his man, or God displays his friend. Those. So here it is in chapter 22. God approaches him and with this supreme test, the, word, the King James uses the word, the verb tempt there in verse 1. Better would be tested or proved him. Or we could even, without doing too much injustice, I think, we could take that tempt out and replace it with displayed. And it came to pass after these things that God did, did display Abraham and showed off Abraham so that we are talking about him and appreciating Abraham and his walk with the Lord even here yet today. Abraham on display. Detachment, development, display. And I credit of Jack Peters, a pastor over in New Holland, with some of the part of the outline and some of these thoughts. Display. Verse 2. As God came to him and spoke those words in verse 2, I wouldn't be surprised that Abraham peace became a little bit unsettled and the pit of his stomach became tighter and harder as God went on and on there with that sentence in verse 2. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Blindsided. The situation went from bad to worse, it seems to me, as God kept speaking to Abraham and spoke things that Abraham and commanded things that Abraham would never have expected that God would say. Things that Abraham never expected that God would command, that God would ask. I think that Abraham's action in verse 3, do you see it there? And I especially notice the ands. 
implying that these things were all part of one process. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. I think the fact that he was able to do that after the horror of, and the command of verse 2, that he was able to act in that way in verse 3, I think is because of his attitude in verse 1, don't you think? God came to him and said, Abraham, and what did Abraham say? He said, behold, here I am. Or we would say, look God, I'm right here, I'm ready. Do you see that attitude that was Abraham's? He was willing, he was ready to do what God said. So much so that even after verse 2, he was willing to do verse 3 and on and on. I'm here, Lord. Look, I'm right here. And I think... I like to think that he was in effect saying with that phrase, behold, here I am, that I'm ready to hear God because I know from experience that you have never been anything but trustworthy. So here I am, I'm ready. He was approachable. Verses 1 through 3, approachable. We notice Abraham's approachableness before God. And then in verses 4 through 8, moving on to verses 4 through 8, I see Abraham's assurance. What? Yes, assurance. In spite of verse 2, Abraham's assurance. Do you see it there? Verse 5, end of the, cha end of the verse. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Verse 7, well, verse 6, they went both of them together. Verse 7, oh, Isaac asked a question and Abraham said, Here am I, my son. There's that phrase again, here am I. Verse 8, God will provide himself a lamb. So they went both of them together. Do you see that assurance? In the very worst day of Abraham's life, secularly speaking, worldly speaking, he was able to assure the young men when they asked the young men and said that we'll be back. He was able to assure his son Isaac, God will provide assurance. Assurance. The New Testament, back there in Hebrews 11, I think verses 17 to 19, talks about how Abraham could have that assurance. It was because he believed that God would raise Isaac even from the dead, from which also he received him in a figure. You can look that up and notice that if you would like. I noticed the word in that, what he told the young men in verse 5, I noticed that word worship. Do you see it there? Worship. Worship. What is worship? Worship is singing and making melody and 
hearing the Bible at, at church. And worship is um, appreciating God's plan of salvation, wonderful as it is, and thanking Him for it. Isn't that worship, right? And what else is worship? Well, we should know because we have attended quite a few worship services in our lifetime. Worship. What is worship? What is worship? The word worship, Henry Morris writing, the word worship as we, means simply bow down and is often so translated. Singing hymns and giving testimonies, hearing a preacher, <clears throat> and enjoying Christian fellowship is not worshiping, although we speak of such activities as a worship service. To worship God is simply to bow down to his will recognizing and acknowledging that his will is best. What he does is right by definition, whether we understand it now or not. His will may involve waiting and suffering, even dying, but if it is his will, then we must bow down to it and accept it with thanksgiving. Well, that was a new thought to me and one that I needed. Worship. We will worship. We will bow down to the will of God up there and we'll be back again. Assurance. We talked about how approachable Abraham was in verses 1 to 3 and how assured he was, verses 4 to 8. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 for just a little bit and see his acceptance of God's will. His acceptance. Until now, the emphasis in this chapter was on Abraham, but now it switches. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Acceptance in verses 9 and 10. And again, I noticed the ands in verse 9. And 10. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar. There and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Do you see the acceptance of God's will? Abraham was going to go through with it the whole way. He wasn't planning on stopping at any convenient or inconvenient place but he was accepting of God's will. He was, is there any doubt in your mind, Abraham was committed to going through with it because God had said so. He was willing to go through the stabbing his son and watching the blood flow and his son die and become a corpse and hear the death gurgle. And he was willing to then put fire there and see the blackened corpse of his son Isaac and smell the stent. Acceptance of God's will. And while we're talking about that, we should also, I'm especially thinking of one word in verse 9, a verb, 
And that word is simply bound. Do you see it there? Bound. He bound Isaac. And there is no way that Abraham could have done that. Remember, he's 133, the equivalent of a 60-year-old. And Isaac is probably around 33. There was no way that Abraham could have bound Isaac unless Isaac allowed him to bind him. Acceptance. Acceptance of God's will. And then there's the approval. In verses 11 through 12, approval. Up till now, the emphasis has been on Abraham, but now here it changes to God. Up till now, God was, when God was speaking here in this chapter, he was commanding and telling Abraham what to do. Up till now, Abraham was just obeying. He was doing the action. He was doing what his superior told him to do. Now, in this approval section, verses 11 through 12 and, and 12, God, along with his commendation and blessing, springs into action and finishes the story and provides, and that brings us to verses 13 and 14, the alternative. So, approachable, assurance, acceptance, and then God's approval. Now, God, verses 13 and 14, God's alternative. God provides an alternative. Thank God. You know, there's this thing in the Old Testament uh, that we sometimes call types and shadows. And it's events or things or objects in the Old Testament that point us to New Testament truth, that way back in the Old Testament point to God's redeeming work through Jesus in the New Testament in various ways. And I remember back in, back in the 70s when I went to Calvary Bible School having classes like Types and Shadows and Tabernacle Studies by Irvin Hershberger, best Bible teacher I ever sat under. And he could explain typology in a way that it kind of stuck, so much so that some of it still sticks in my mind today. And he, one of the things that Irvin Hershberger used to say is that types break down eventually. Uh, they have their place and they make their point, but you can't take them just too far. So here in verse Verses 13 and 14, the ram, the alternative, the ram that God provided instead of Isaac. Here, it's, it's easy for us to see, isn't it, that in this story, that Abraham is a type of God the Father, and Isaac is a type of Jesus, God the Son, who was given for the who was offered for the sins of the whole world. Easy for us to see. But now suddenly, Isaac, who was, had been a type of Christ in the earlier verses, the type changes. Do you notice that? And now all of a sudden he becomes a type of you and me, sinful man who needs a substitute. And the ram becomes a type of Christ. God provided an alternative. God provided a substitute 
to save men from their sins. That's a beautiful picture here in Genesis 22 of what God and Jesus did and accomplished in the New Testament. God provided. In that type, in those pictures, in those prefiguring of what the Old Testament and New Testament, we notice that here in the type, there was a substitute found and a substitute provided. The ram. Wonderful. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. But when God actually did that and offered his son on Calvary, Mount Calvary 2,000 years after this one, there was no alternative. There was no substitute found. Jesus went all the way to the death of the cross. Thank God for Jesus. Let's look at verses 15 and 18. The award that was given to Abraham. We see his, he was approachable and he had assurance. His acceptance. We notice God's approval and God's alternative and now God's award. Verses 15 through 18. And as I look at verse 17, verse 17, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. Notice, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, as the stars of heaven... And as the sand which is by the seashore, follow here as Henry Morris talks about that. Abraham recognized that God was saying his descendants would be impossible to count. But it did sound as though he was making an unscientific comparison when he likened the stars to the sand. In our modern day of giant telescopes, however, we know that such a comparison is very appropriate. No one knows the exact number of stars, but it can be roughly estimated, for the observable universe at least, as approximately 10 to the 25th power. Since there are approximately 10 to the 15th power square feet of area on the Earth's surface and approximately 10 million grains of sand in a cubic feet of sand, if we assume that there is an average of 1,000 feet of sediments around the surface of the Earth, probably deeper than this on the ocean bottom, but, sh- but shallower on the land surface, then the number of sand-sized particles would also be calculated as 10 to the 25th powers. Are there any mathematicians here still following? Although such a calculation may well be considerable in error, it at least shows that the stars and the sand are of about the same order of magnitude in number. This fact could not have been discovered by men without the telescope, so it constitutes one of the many remarkable examples of modern scientific truth found in the pages of the Bible long before scientists could have learned them by the scientific method. Verse 17. Abraham's award is that he will have... Descendants like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And I'm also thinking about verse 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be all the nations of the earth be blessed. And in thy seed shall all the na- 
That would include you and me, wouldn't it? All the nations of the world have been blessed because of Abraham's obedience and response to God in Genesis 22. Am I saying that? Am I right there? And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now how are you and how am I blessed by Abraham's example and obedience there on Mount Moriah that day? How? Let me just suggest a few things. We are blessed, we here, it's very possible that every last one of us are Gentiles here and that there's not one Jewish person here, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we have been blessed, every one of us, every Gentile, and especially every Gentile in Christ has been blessed by the tr truth of the, of the one true God. Every other people in the history of Basically, every other people, all the Gentiles have come up with this weird idea of many gods. But the Jew, you can fault him for lots of things. But one of the things that they did rather consistently with their ups and downs have witnessed to the world of the one true God, the truth of the one true God, the, the fact that we, the fact that you and I, and I know about the one true God. There's only one. There's not many. The one true and holy God, the fact that we know about that, it came to us through the Jew, came to us through Abraham's descendants. And by extension, we can almost say it came to us because of Abraham's obedience on Mount Moriah that day. We can say the same thing about the Bible. Now, there was people like Luke, a Gentile that wrote some of the Bible, but most of the Bible, and the fact that it has come down to us in such a pure form today was largely because of the Jewish nations, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one can almost say that we have knowledge of God's wonderful book because of Abraham's obedience on Mount Moriah that day. But we can't talk about the spiritual blessings that we enjoy through Abraham and his physical descendants without thinking of another thing, right? And that's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world and the Lord of all. Thank God for Jesus. So I have another point. We talked about detachment, development, and the display. But getting back to the title, what's to be seen on Mount Moriah? What's to be seen there? Let's give a little bit of definition to that. The fourth point, to, make, to give a definition means to make something definite, distinct, or clear. I'll try. Definition. Shouldn't we attempt to answer the title? What's to be seen on Mount Moriah? Let's do. Well, I've been trying, and especially... What's to be seen on Mount Moriah? Well, the, one of the things that I especially would highlight is what we just talked about, the blessings that we've received through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their physical descendants, one, truth of the one true God, the Bible, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one thing that we can see to be seen on Mount Moriah. 
just in picture form, of what God actually did in New Testament days when Jesus, his son, willingly came down and endured the death of the cross. Takes us back to the word bound a little bit, right? Abraham could not have been bound unless he was willing. God would not... Probably God would not have sent Jesus unless he was willing. We often think about what Calvary, Mount Calvary, meant to the sun. But, Abra- but Genesis 22 and what happened on Mount Moriah that day especially helps us to understand what Mount Calvary must have meant to the Father. For us who are fathers, we have father hearts. And the rest of us too, for that matter, can, at least in part, Understand the anguish and the agony of Abraham's soul. And then maybe in a small way, we can understand and appreciate the agony and the anguish of God the Father's soul that day on Mount Calvary. So James 2.23 says that Abraham was the friend of God. Now, how does someone get to be a friend of God? Are you a friend? Am I a friend of God? James 2.23, he was called the friend of God. John 15.14, Jesus the Son said, I thought maybe I could quote that, but I guess I can't. John 15.14, Ye are my friends, Jesus said, if you do whatsoever, I command you. What's to be seen on Mount Moriah? Well, there is a, we can see the blessings that God has blessed us with through Abraham. We can see what Mount Calvary meant to the Father. But especially, we can see what's to be seen on Mount Moriah. We can see how to become a friend of God. Abraham accomplished that without much help from the Holy Spirit and without much help from the Bible. He didn't have those things very much, if at all. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Bible. And we also, God is calling us to that today. He's calling you and he's calling me to be a friend of God. That's something that we can see from on Mount Moriah. How does one become a friend of God? Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Will you kneel with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that everyone here and everyone listening in could indeed be a friend of God. Be your friend because we obey your voice. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Abraham who was willing to go up there to Mount Moriah and offer his son. And the Bible says that he actually did offer him up in in a figure. Thank you that Isaac was raised from the dead in that picture. And thank you, Lord, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to leave the pearly gates of heaven, come down here. He was willing to, Heavenly Father, and for our sin and bear the full weight of sin 
on the cross. Thank you that you've highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Lord, for Abraham, but more and for Isaac, but especially, Heavenly Father, we thank you for yourself, for providing a way of salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater than Isaac, who has washed us with his own blood, and we can be clean and pure and fitted for heaven, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.